0: You know, yeah. but the, at the core, it's really just about becoming one of the community members. You know, because after that, anything is possible. Our storytelling helps bridge that gap, close the power dynamic from like power over to power with, and once you're one of the homies, you're just one of the homies. Hi, I'm Benji Ross,
1: and I'm Anna Perpara,
2: and we want to welcome you to Awakening Lands,
1: where we aim to give land a voice and share stories of humans who are learning to live in ways that nurture and animate life.
2: Here, you'll find unfolding stories of regeneration that are happening all over the planet, and feel the story of humans learning to come home. We will highlight the people working to create the possibility of regenerating whole landscapes. We're calling these people landscape leaders.
1: The easiest way to spot them is by their devotion to their people and place. They are essential to regeneration, and we want to share their stories in order for them to see one another and for us all to see the pathways they've taken. It's in this way we'll also see entire bioregional narratives coming to life.
2: And we're aiming to do more than tell stories. The Earth needs our humans to come together as one, to become more than we've been. Let's co-create the spaces to do so. Let's author the stories that show us how. Are you in?
1: All right. Well, hello, everyone. Today we are speaking with Kieran Topiwala. And Kieran is an artist, someone who is learning to walk the pathway of regeneration, a seeker of the right way to be humans together on Earth. He believes in the power of collaboration, innovation, and conscious design to create a positive impact on the world. Kieran's also the founder of Kula, which is doing some very inspiring things to make regenerative practices and land connection accessible for more people. He's the creative director of Unorthodox Publishing, a community art and storytelling initiative. And we have some other community artists in other bioregions in our network, so I'm sure that they will be very excited to hear that, Kieran. Um, and an an important storyline in Kieran's life, which we'll be sure to explore a bit in our conversation, is that when he was selecting a practicum for his master's degree in development practice, he chose to explore development strategies for a grassroots organization in Dharamshala, India called Educare. It was at Educare that Kieran met a true community weaver, one might also say a landscape leader. This was a man named Harjit who has since strongly informed how Kieran thinks about community and landscape regeneration. I once heard Kieran say that this experience revealed to him the concept of regenerative flows. So we'll meander, hopefully meander through some of this in our chat. And Kieran also likes fishing and photography. Well, welcome Kieran, it's uh-huh. great to have you.
0: Thanks so much, Anna and Benji. Thanks for having me. Great yeah. Good to have you. Great.
1: Well, and we like to open up our podcast with um, a little gratitude practice. We would love to hear what you're grateful for.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Biggest thing for me is I'm just eternally grateful for my family, my friends. They're really just like the support system. And without them, like, there's just no way I would be where I am today doing what I am. And it's just really awesome to, uh, to continually have them in my life as not only like, people to bounce off ideas with but also just like go through life with and this journey that I'm on try to bring them on that as well and it's just really awesome to do that with them
1: great well and we were just saying how people in your life are just they're they're the center of so much of what you do and what you care for so that's wonderful to hear how about you Benji what are you thankful for
2: yeah, grateful. thankful, grateful, also for support systems. Yeah, they're everywhere, uh, right? They're so they easy are. to overlook, but they're everywhere. So uh, I appreciate that. I want to be grateful for that too. Uh, and I'm also really grateful for worlds within worlds. And what I mean by that is I just traveled from Paonia, Colorado on the Western slopes. And now I'm in Denver. I'm staying with family for a little bit. Uh, before I move on to my next um, adventure. And I just love the difference in expression of the landscapes between the Western Slopes and the Front Range. It's just so, it, it just has a completely different character, even though it's you know, both Rocky Mountains. And I just love that you know when you travel the world, I'm just yeah. constantly in awe that it can be so different. That's just something that I find is so natural to be grateful for. How about you, Anna?
1: Mm. Well, I I'm also grateful for the variability of the land but specifically like across the t- across time and across seasons. So I live in the northeast mm-hmm. and we are really finally hitting peak color season finally. So we have um you know all the trees on my block are all vibrant shades of red and yellow and orange and we got a light dusting of snow last night too so it's just so beautiful outside and I just I love this time of year so
2: all right here and you ready for some questions
0: yeah let's get into it
2: let's jump in uh so our first one we figured we had to start here for a couple of reasons it it uh it seems to be something that uh, defines your life speaking of the dharma when we think about you know, these practices that we engage in uh, that help us to become better humans that define uh, so much of our perspective of the world, really they're upstream of everything else that we do. They're really so impactful. Uh, and you've shared, you know, the 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 influence that the the Dharma that your practice has on you in a number of ways in, in terms of how it um, helps you to walk through the world, influences your relationships. I'm just wondering if you can share with us you know, what it looks like and and maybe how those influences have shown up for you.
0: Yeah, sure. Yeah, this discernment of what dharma is for myself and that kind of journey of figuring out like what is right in a sense and like what to do, it, like really just stems from like um, those people around you, the landscapes around you. And like those support systems that we were already, we already mentioned that we're so grateful for. But like once you're able to like figure out what they actually are and how they operate, you can really try to figure out what that system is and how it's supporting. Dharma in my interpretation is literally just that which supports. When it relates to like regeneration, it's just regeneration is also that which supports natural cycles of life. And like once you like notice these things and become aware of them, you're able to continually build your dharma It can help discern like what to do next, like what your actions are going to be, what your karma is, like like your way of being in the world. That's kind of my approach to life. And it it really comes down to allowing things to fall into place and knowing and like observing these kinds of things, why things happen, how you react to things. A lot of self-reflection goes into it. And it's just a really powerful way of like, trusting the process in a sense and just being there being aware of those things is so powerful in, in the way that things can happen and, and like knowing what to do it's more of like the spiritual journey of figuring out who am i and what is this path that i want to be on and then like once you're able to figure that out like that system that supports that it makes it much easier to figure out where you want to be so once you're aware of that dharma it's very much simplified in a sense like this is the next step and this is what i should be doing So that's a little bit about that.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And I think it's really interesting to reflect on, yes, it's a process that all of us as individuals can cultivate practice to guide us in becoming better humans. And there's just, there's so much that can also be applied to the communal scale, to the group scale. One of the things that really strikes me is, is the value of uh, in Dharma practices of, of, of awareness, of observing, of developing the reflex to go back to that place of observation so you can operate from intuition, so you can see the the field more fully, so you can operate from the heart and the mind. I wonder if there's, you know, if is there any intuition that you have around how this can be applied to groups and regeneration on the community scale, this idea of observation?
0: Yeah, a lot of it. I think has to do with this kind of concept of belonging. Once you start to belong to a group of people in that community, it makes it easier to be aware of like the kind of group dynamics, like what's happening. For me, this really starts like at home with the family. Once you're able to like belong with your family, you're aware of everyone, what they're wanting to do, how they want to be in life. And then it's much easier to figure out how to do these things together. We could be living under one roof and everyone's kind of living individual lives in a sense and they're not really tied together and there's kind of not that sense of belonging even if you're living together under the same roof. Once you're able to start to belong and you become aware, the dharma kind of becomes collective and there's just these next steps that you could go along this path as a group together and it would just feel right and you'd notice things falling into place that are no longer coincidences and they're just patterns of of things that are happening and you're just allowing them to happen. But the tricky part is trying to scale that. You can't try to go out and make this happen with other people. It's very much like a personal journey in itself where you have to be a part of it.
1: I know that you've talked about in the past how your family is incredibly important in your view of the future and how you want them to come along with you. And I think that that's so important When we're thinking about a culture shift, bringing all those people who are very important along with you. Um, So I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to your family and the role that they play in what you see your future being.
0: For sure. For me, this journey inward and trying to figure out what my own dharma is and what kind of karma that translates to, like what kind of actions that translates to. The deeper you dive, you figure out that where you are is very much because of those around you and trying to figure out where that disconnect and belonging happened and like how that made my family live kind of more individualized. It really goes back to like when we were disconnected from land, the land back in India, where we were all uh, living together, we had dependent lives. And that was a couple of generations ago, right? I've been like generationally displaced in the sense in the ancestors like my grandparents and their parents decided to go on this journey across the world to go fulfill like this american dream and in the name of development in a sense and being more modern and more advanced and in the process we got very lost there was no connection to the land and then when you when you lose that you start losing the connection with each other so what happens now is we're trying to figure out how to belong with each other. But there's also that longing for like where we want to be and like where that place is. And for me, I grew up in a household where we, we still practice a lot of the cultural things from India generations ago. We grew up eating like Gujarati food. We grew up going to all these different festivals. And, but it just felt like we were in a foreign land at the same time. So you're trying to preserve all these things. But then at the same time, you still feel that kind of longing to like, okay, maybe we should like go back. So now generations later, we're living here all together, kind of living independent lives. So as much as it is my journey, in a sense, like trying to go and do regenerative work, and like my own dharma has guided me to go and do this in a sense, you kind of discover that you can't really go forward and do this work without them. Because if you can't even show for yourself that there's this kind of Dharma as a collective, and you're able to do these things as a family, then there's not really a way in my mind that you can just go out and create like a whole cultural shift and like influence other people to do the same thing. So, as much as it's like uh, my own journey, it's also like trying to prove to myself and other people that, you know, this is a very possible thing and it starts at home. And I think my story is kind of unique in a sense because I also have a lot of friends that are immigrants and they're kind of. Still lost. They went through college and they're working their jobs and now they're living away from their family. And we continue to separate our lives from the support system that has always been there for us. And it just snowballs into all kinds of different facets of health and being in the world. It's just, I think, the core of what the problem is in a sense. There's not really like this fancy development thing that needs to happen. I think we just need to go back to that support system and be with each other. Like create that sense of belonging with the land as well. So for me, it's very much my journey, but also I I know I, it's my family's journey as well, because we made it here as a family. And now it's time to to continue being a family and kind of go back and, and see what we can do together.
1: Yeah. And I think um, one of the reasons why your story resonates so much with me and Benji, and I'm sure so many others is that feeling that can be very isolating. So the fact that you place so much emphasis on bringing your family along with you is something that I think is um, what so many people are looking for and your ideas of being able to replicate that very uplifting and inspiring and will make so many more people comfortable with this pathway.
2: I also think it's really orienting that you have this very strong intuition that it is your extended family and its connections to a particular place in India that may be your best regenerative pathway.
0: Yeah. And I think that's something that also resonates with a lot of the family members as well. And even though like, I never even grew up there, it's just, it feels like home. It feels like the longing that we are in search of for belonging is that place is over there in a sense. And maybe that's because of the way that the family lived generations ago together there and the social customs, the traditions, the way that we were brought up over here. We had like a little piece of the pie, if you will, and the whole pie is over there.
2: Yeah. Okay. Well, we've sort of dipped our toes into your story in India. I think that let's back up for just a minute to sort of the building blocks, like philosophy. You know, we we kind of like tongue in cheek call you a bit of a rebel learner. Um, and we mean that endearingly. You're willing to go against the grain. And I think that that's such a, it's such an important attribute. And it's something that we see over and over in our network of landscape leaders. So many of us, if you look at our our journeys through life, our learning journeys in particular, we've sort of molded them uh, to, to something that we feel is regenerative. And so uh, i just like to, to reflect on, on how you became so comfortable going your own direction. If you have any origin story, that'd be great. Or if there's any particular philosophy you can share, I think that would be helpful for, for our landscape leaders.
0: For sure. For sure. I feel like there's so many different ways I could take that. And it's just like such a complex web of things that made me the way that I am. But one thing at the core of it, I think is like, I've always just been like super curious and I always question the way, way things are maybe that has to do with my background in engineering and just like trying to figure out how things work and I've always been like very curious in that sense so whenever I'd go and do something it's very much about like asking the questions why like why is it this way or why is it that way why is it happening like that and I remember like maybe one of the earliest instances was when I was working in Honduras we were there working with a community designing and planning the the water system so it was more engineering than it was like doing the the community work but one of the things that like me and some of my my friends that I was down there with noticed off the bat was we had been there before in a much poorer community that didn't even have water access and then this community that we were in had water access and they it seemed like they were better off in a sense so one of the one of the questions that kept bugging us was like why did we get assigned to do this one when we know there's other villages out there that don't even have water so that, you know, that brought up a lot, a lot of questions about like, so how do people decide like, where, where does the sustainable development happen? Like, where does the aid go? And it led to a lot of questions like, where should even my place be? Where should I be helping? Because I know I have something to offer, but you obviously can't be in every single place that wants doing these kinds of projects everywhere. And it kind of made me dive into like the ethics and the spirituality of it all and like trying to figure out for myself a lot of things along the lines of how development happens but also how does that relate to you as a person and like where your place is and all that and ever since then it kind of just snowballed into me questioning like how everything happens and I ended up doing this development practice program at Emory uh, where I continued questioning a lot of things like we learn about how things are broken how these kind of nonprofit industrial complexes take shape and you ask, why does that happen? Like, why is it continuing to be perpetuated? Why is it not being fixed? And then it starts begging questions like, all right, well, if I know that this is what's happening um, and I don't want to be a part of it, then what What do I do? Like, what can I do even? So in a sense, that contributes to like my own dharma and like figuring out what my karma is again, right? Like it's very much, this is what I know and this is what I figured out for myself And then that translates into figuring out what you can do, like where you can help. And I think being like a contrarian in that sense and always questioning things is just so powerful because it helps you figure out your own ethics and like how you want to be working in the world, where you want to be working in the world and how your approach should be. I'm not saying like my approach is right, but at least I think that I'm okay with my approach in a sense. And it makes me be comfortable versus conforming to someone else's interpretation and their ethics and going and doing the same work
2: follow-up question mm-hmm. i see you smile a lot when you talk about like being a contrarian and rebel learner is there like playfulness in it for oh, you yeah. as well do you think that's a big part of it
0: i did enjoy being a contrarian <laughs> <laughs> Child. and the professors honestly like it allowed me to do things like my way in a sense so like mm-hmm. if they assign something in a that was I like kind of framed in one way, I would just take it a completely opposite direction and then end up doing better on that assignment than everyone else. <laughs> so
2: it was mm. just like, aha. <laughs> yeah, wow, yeah, that that speaks to the uh, mysterious power of creativity and thinking outside the box. Yeah, that's always available to you, even if there are you know certain constraints you perceive. Oftentimes, you sure. can just blast right through those. For sure.
1: And I think that you being a contrarian was really apparent when you chose your pa- your practicum site. I'm wondering if you could tell us the story about how you came to Find Educare and how you ended up going to India.
0: For sure. Went grassroots. Mm-hmm. I did. Yeah, yeah, low
1: resource.
0: Low resource. It really just starts with trying to figure out. So, like, my first year during the program, I was working with project teams in. Ghana, Morocco, Zimbabwe, and Bangladesh, I think. The whole premise was like trying to figure out projects that had been completed like three to seven years ago had sustained or not. And this just begged a lot of questions to me. Is like, how do we not even bake in sustainability to these programs? So like, we don't need to go back and do studies to know that they sustained. So it was just a lot of problematic things for me. It didn't make sense, first of all, and it was just like a waste of money in a sense we're really spending time doing this when there's actually things that we could be doing on the ground. And a lot of the things that we're doing was not even like tied to a landscape. It was just reports and numbers and that were meaningless in a sense because it didn't seem like it was tied to anything that was good. So... During my first year, I originally had planned my first practicum would just be a continuation of my work that I had been doing during the semesters. But during the second semester, like we had the opportunity to be connected with an organization that had a lot of grassroots partners all over the world, and they would basically be helping students in the program to be like placed into a practicum. So a lot of the, actually a lot of the organizations through that, I think it was called oh gosh, basically like a connecting organization. They had a lot of grassroots Organizations, but I think they also had some other like nonprofits and such. But I decided I wanted to be like on the ground, not behind a computer all summer, and you know, trying to get like a fuller experience of everything. And the one other thing that I knew that I wanted was I wanted to go to India because like there's always that continuous longing in the sense I already talked about. And I think it would all, it was also something that like my family was very supportive of because like I'd already done work in other places, but I hadn't made my way over to what was home for us. So they were very excited about that. And I was too, just to finally be going back to India after like, I think seven or eight years. So it kind of just naturally happened in a sense. Like I wasn't like really pushing it. And I think I had one conversation with Harjit and he was supposed to just be like an introductory call. And I think he said that I'm not gonna interview you after this this is how we operate this is like what we do and we're a low resource organization we're not really like putting money towards a problem we're just designing like these regenerative systems that are sustainable and it's a lot of working with the communities working with the government and it took me not too long to actually understand what he was talking about and i was just like this feels so right and when he said he's not gonna interview me and it's just up to me if i want to come or not i was like this is this really sounds like the place that is for me and he gave a lot of warnings like a lot of people like don't understand this and like they come here with expectations of doing like a community project like a cleanup or something and we don't do that here like it's just community like weaving and trying to create these regenerative flows and creating these programs that are just built in sustainable and I was like dude you should be working like at the UN like you should be designing all these massive programs and he's like nah you can't do that when your work is at the local grassroots level and I was like That's so valid. And as soon as he said all that, I was like, well, I'll see you this summer then. (laughs) The next thing you know, like, I'm just on the ground with Harjit, following him around, and we're just in a constant discourse of how to do things and design these programs to be regenerative. And it just felt like proper grassroots sustainable development without, like, this huge influx of money. There's no emphasis on report making and fluffing up the numbers and None of these things that make the nonprofit industrial complex what it is. And I was just like, this just seems like how sustainable development should be happening. And why is it not? <laughs> so it was just an incredible
2: time. That's so inspiring. Uh I wish I could have been there with you to experience that. Uh hey, I feel come one day.
0: <laughs> all right.
2: That's all you're gonna say. <laughs> Love to go to India. Uh yeah, same. I feel like I've experienced some of these um, these principles and patterns elsewhere that you're sort of referencing as you uh, describe things like regenerative flows and the way that Harjit is in community. You talked about how this stuff just isn't scalable, right? Like yeah. true community regeneration processes that that really see the the holism of community and how it relates to place. You just can't scale those. They want to be grassroots, yeah. and so I, I've seen examples, I think, of regenerative flows, and I've met people who are true community weavers. In in my explorations, as I've learned more and more about bioregionalism, I, I wonder: Do you have any examples of regenerative flows, or maybe we can talk a little bit about Harjeet as a weaver as a way to explore regenerative flows? You could take that any way you want.
0: For sure. I guess like the the one that really like opened my eyes for me was just the project that I was helping Harjeet design when I was in Dharamshala. And this was not supposed to be my main project, but it kind of just like became the main project that I was helping with, and it was called Sehat Seva. And Seva is basically short for social entrepreneurship and volunteer action. So Sehat Seva was born during COVID when They were doing some other kinds of projects in the communities in response to COVID, like just disaster relief stuff in partnership with the government and the Red Cross. And something that was just kind of surfaced was lack of care for the elderly, especially in like the rural villages. And really at the core of that was also like a lack of belonging with their family and like having that support system there, because a lot of the kids are starting to move to the cities and There's just like a disconnect in the family where there's not really that aspect of intergenerational bonding anymore. And out of that bonding, there's care. So this project, Seva was aimed at training people from these villages community health and then creating like an establishment that these kind of community workers could work under within those villages. So I'll go into that a little bit more in detail, but the basic premise was everything that we need to know to deliver this kind of care is already there in the communities, right? It's not like we need to get a grant from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and then do some kind of intervention and then produce a report after. It was like, okay, so the government has hospitals here that already have courses. Uh, There's people in the communities. You know, this is a possible avenue. If they get trained as a community health worker, they could go and deliver that care and also make some money. So it was very much like going into the communities, talking to different people, not only like elderly that would be patients, but also like community health workers that would be trained. And then it was also sitting at the government offices trying to convince them like, hey, could you give us these courses for this kind of group of people for free and give that training and be in the hospitals so that way we can go and do this kind of thing that would just benefit everybody. So it was just a genius design program because to, you know, get a huge amount of money and then go into a community and then like hire people to do something and then build something with infrastructure. It yeah. was just like people volunteering to do this or do something like this and like, you know, kind of gift the program training to community health workers in like a small cohort. And then we educare, like we created like a like a council of elders. That would work with the community health workers trained in what's called Seat Seva Sanstan, which translates to organization. So like it would be the establishment and it would have like a physical office within the cluster of three villages and the community health workers would be able to like work out of there. So each satellite office would cater to like three villages in the area and there would be like like maybe three from each village that would be part of that smaller satellite office and they would be able to deliver care in alliance with the elderly council. So Mm -hmm. it was just like, wow, you really don't need these giant interventions and all those kinds of things that development theory teaches and everything in a sense was already there that Harjit was able to design into the system. And the, one of the most eye-opening things for me was how he wasn't really a part of that system. He was just kind of the one that like saw the pieces, brought it together, made it happen. One thing in development that I'm very interested in is just like the power dynamics of how all this works. When you go in with money or you go into a community trying to do something, it creates like that power over power dynamic. And then it's you're kind of doing things for these people instead of with these people. So you're not really empowering anybody. You may not have like a sustainable intervention because you're kind of giving it to them and expecting them to sustain it without actually them wanting to, or even knowing like what is happening. So it's not, it's not grassroots at all, but what Harjit was weaving together was grassroots in my mind. And it just was clearly the better way to do things. That's the one project that opened my mind, And then now we're talking about like other kinds of projects and I still chat with them all the time and I'll hopefully be back up there early next year
2: yeah that's great yeah you know we were thinking a little bit earlier about the value of thinking beyond constraints in order to unlock creativity Uh, I think that so much of what we're talking about is thinking beyond the constraints of of money as the thing that enables us to do all of these things it seems like money actually just gets in the way. It creates structures where we we continue to rely on more money in order to continue processes that were formed initially with money. Go figure. Yeah. <laughs> but when we're when we don't have money, when we're low resource, we open ourselves up to all the other things that are happening. We see the system in terms of the the full variety of of forms of capital, of forms of value, and of course it's so much more than money. Money is just a, a concept that we've invented. We start to see ecology, and I right. think that that's a that's a really interesting way of of thinking about regenerative flows, of framing right. regenerative flows. It's all the things that already exist that you know we're we're sort of blinded to because we're we're caught thinking that money is the way that we have to do everything. For sure. And so going back to Harjit as the community weaver, he probably has a lot of intuition around this kind of thing. I wonder if you could give us just a picture of how he moves through the day. You've had some pretty like, comical descriptions in the past. I wonder if you could share with our audience. What's it like to follow Harjit?
0: It's like a roller coaster. You never really know which direction you're headed. You're kind of being thrown around everywhere. In a sense, the way that I like to roll is very much like in the moment as well, very emergent. Like kind of allow things to fall into place and you don't really like have control it's just like, like you're just doing things because they feel right or like that's what appears in your life obviously I think I do that to a good point but like Harjeet is just on another level um like he'll wake up and and there's just things that happen and that's just how his day goes like you never really know what is going to happen the next day and you're not planning for it either. This is what's on the table right now and this is what we can do. And then that kind of evolves into what we do. So you wake up in the morning and I, I usually got to the office around like eight and we we just went from there, had breakfast, had a conversation and then he'd start getting phone calls from whoever it may be, the community, health workers, elderly village councils. It could be like the district commissioner's office. It could be Red Cross. It, it could be whoever. And then it's just like, all right, well, this is the phone call. That's what it was about. This is what, what's happening. And he's like, all right, this is now what we can do about it. So he's just kind of the guy that everything goes through and is the one holding um, not only the relationships in place, but also just like regenerative flows in a sense. And I think it's just so like, beautiful like how he does it because a lot of people just don't have the capacity to roll like that. I think like you never really know what's next and there's not really a sense of security. And I think that's also like one of the, uh, the biggest challenges people have in like making a transition and doing like weaving work because there's not really that sense of security in doing it because it's not about him. He's just existing as part of this larger web of life. It's supporting him somehow. And I still don't know how, but it is. And It's not like he's a piece that is partaking in this complex. He is like actually just part of it at this point. I think that's also why it's so important to be tied to that landscape in a sense, because like if he leaves, things start to fall apart. And once you're part of that complex web of life, in a sense, you're just there. You belong and things just happen. And when you're not, it's like you're consistently fighting to be on the right path.
2: Yeah, well, I just want to really quickly, before moving on to Anna, thank you for sharing that story, because it's so important for us to see that the, the bi-regional movement, bi-regional learning and evolution really requires these sorts of people. They, they live in a, in a world that, that lacks security, but they are weaving together and, and carrying essential processes. And so how do we learn how to support them? That's a, that's a lot of what we're trying to do you know, with this podcast. So yeah, thank you for that story. For sure.
1: Yeah, I agree. Harjit just seems like he's such an influential person in your life and in the community. And it's wonderful to be able to highlight all the things that he does. So your kind of apprenticeship with Harjit, how did you move from that into coming up with the idea for sacred sanctuaries?
0: For sure. A lot of this, you know, happened naturally towards the end of my summer with Harjit there were a lot of questions about like how can we like bring more people into this kind of work how do we like pass along this intuition of weaving and how do we create more weavers and create access for people to do that kind of work but also this would be a place where we can immerse people who have no real knowing of what even weaving is but also just like people who want to get a taste of doing regenerative work because it feels like especially like among all my friends there's some work that feels right and there's some work that just doesn't feel right like people have a knack for wanting to do like social impact stuff but then there's an access problem there's not really like a place for people to go and do that and then also make money to sustain themselves so besides volunteering there's not really a way of life that exists for people to live regeneratively and have that sense of security that the dunya gives you at the moment so in having those kinds of conversations with Harjeet, it was just really apparent that we needed to create pathways that provided that kind of access and support system to people who didn't have it. Because people are motivated. There's just not a very clear way for people to get involved. And at the core of it is that kind of belonging with each other, belonging with the landscape. So it has to start with the place. And that concept of sacred sanctuaries is born. That would be the place where this kind of work and the weaving flows through but it also becomes a place for people to come get immersed into the work learn the ways of weaving but also just learn how to become like a part of the complex web of life that exists teach them how to see it Mm -hmm. just a whole web of things that could happen and then also at the same time like create sustainable financing model for these things to operate and not really like as a business but as a place for people to come and find that sense of security because Otherwise, they wouldn't come if they don't feel that support that they need. Yeah, that's that's how sacred sanctuaries came about, but it continues to evolve to this day. And we that the core of it is still just we need what we're calling like the sanctuary stewards in a sense, the real champions of the community, like Harjit, who are the ones that are being the mentors for these rangers who were calling like the people to come and have that experience at a sanctuary and become a part of the work that is happening, get immersed in it and find a way to contribute. Um, because without those sanctuary stewards, it wouldn't happen. You could have a place, but you don't have the person to connect the place with the people.
2: It creates the support structure going back to family, right? Extended family. We all need support structures. Yep. We can't do, we can't go alone in any of this. And so I I see this as this awesome opportunity to create access to the the livelihood so people can get a taste of it. You've also mentioned connecting people to land, because oftentimes people are coming from these urban settings and they are very concerned about the earth. They long for deeper connection, but oftentimes they don't have access to it. So I am really excited to hear how this idea evolves and through practice on the ground, what you learn. And lastly, storytelling is so important. You mentioned that as well. Yeah. Um, and I'm wondering if there's anything you can share with us about how you are telling this story or how you're thinking about the story as, as part of Sacred Sanctuaries.
0: For sure. Yeah, I mean, narrative is the thing that holds it all together. Like, it's the most powerful thing we have. Even something I've recognized, how my path, my story has influenced the people around me. I just noticed this past weekend when I was having my first art gallery where I was showing the photos and the stories from this past summer in India. And so many people I didn't even know came up and they're like, wow, this is like some incredible photos, but also just like the stories behind it. It hit the point where people were like, this is the kind of stuff that I want to be doing. This is the kind of work that I want to be immersed in and not sitting in a cubicle working for TikTok or whatever it may be. (laughs) So it goes back to like, it's my journey, but it's also like, I can see how my friends are starting to become more inspired and like wanting to go and do this kind of work. But without the courage in a sense, it's hard to go and fully be a part of that complex web of life that we try to push forward in the sacred sanctuaries. So it's very much about like, how can we use the storytelling and like the art and like show people like this is very much possible. And like, it helps to create The story of going down that path and fully being immersed in it at some point. And it starts with cool stories and like showing people this is how you can, you know, make the baby steps into working your way there. The stories of how things fall into place. And at the core of it is we're trying to figure out like how our individual stories are now becoming like a story of us.
1: And I know that you have several projects that you're working on where you're really bringing your. Photography, especially into this storytelling and artistic expression of what you're doing. Um, That's what your role in unorthodox publishing focuses on. And you just recently put out a zine called Maya that shares so many stories across your time in India and uh, things that you've been involved in. And I think that you're trying to raise the stories of others as well in this process, which is wonderful. And you developed this program called The Rangers, where you are inviting young people into this regenerative pathway. And I'm wondering, how does your storytelling bring people into a program like this? How are you using your talents to to draw people into this program that you've designed?
0: For sure. So at the very core, like The Ranger Program is just to get people immersed in Regenerative work and starting to go down like the pathway of weaving, but also just like sustainable development work and like regaining that connection with the land and with the community. Art, storytelling, it helps to form that sense of belonging. I've noticed it's just like when I'm shooting photos in a community, when I ask to take a photo of someone in the community, like like that camera, when I'm taking that photo, it connects like me with the person that I'm taking a photo of. It starts a conversation and that conversation turns into storytelling of my place and what I'm doing there but also like their life and what they're doing there from there it just it just evolves and continues to evolve into how our stories connect it's just like a beautiful thing from there it just you don't know what's going to happen i think using my photography to like see that has just been so powerful and then when you're able to share these stories like a lot of the portraits that i had at the show were people that like I spent a lot of time with and got to know and there's a whole relationship underneath that photo trying to explain that and show that to people was really powerful because like that kind of connection is something that people lack I think Mm -hmm. and like once you're able to use the art to connect with people shows people like there is a way to do it and really powerful in a sense in connecting and bringing people together creating that sense of belonging
2: I heard recently somebody say that they met with some some young people uh, and brought in these these stories of of regeneration. Uh, and they were left with the sense that there is this enormous latent energy amongst young people. There is this yeah. enormous hunger for stories that hold within them a a positive future because they haven't heard much of that. They yeah. haven't heard much of that. And so, I just want to take a moment to reflect on how impactful, because of that latent energy, things like community art and hosting these sorts of discussions with young people can be. Uh, and I think you're you're filling that role. I think you're tapping into that energy, and so good yeah. on you
0: for it. Yeah, it's it's so massive. I felt it myself just on my own journey. Like you start reading something, and you're like, wow, I really, really resonate with that, and then you want to learn more. And then like somehow you start going on your own journey of making these stories happen. And yeah. there's so much of that latent energy, even just with my own friends, they're wanting to get involved somehow. So it's all like, how can we continue seeing how they can get there and whether it be in their own landscape or what they want to do, how they want to create their own stories with their own families and regain their connection with the people, the land and everything. But, yeah, I see stories and art. It is the most powerful thing we have. I mean, like the news uses their narratives to do things, and I feel like we could do the same. <laughs> so mm-hmm.
2: there's yeah. a rebel learner,
0: yeah, there we go, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was so awesome. like I was just really taken aback at the at the gallery on Saturday when it's so cool seeing like how people were inspired and like I even talked to like parents of my friends and they're like they're still confused at like what all my work is really about and it's kind of hard to explain, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But the at the core it's really just about becoming one of the community members, you know, because after that anything is possible. Art storytelling helps bridge that gap, close the power dynamic from like power over to power with. And once you're one of the homies, you're just one of the homies.
2: yeah that's it
1: well and i think that's a it's interesting that you're weaving these things together because one of the one of the challenges with sustainable development is bringing people in from the outside and having them impose their ideas and their structures on a community are you empowering the rangers to really these rangers are people who are coming in from the outside and going and working in other communities. How are you empowering them to have this mindset similar to what you had, where you are truly working with the community and not for the community?
0: Yeah. It really starts with just making sure you have like an open mind, really. It has to do with that kind of awareness. You're the foreigner here in a sense. You're not from this landscape. So when it comes down to like what is happening on the ground, you shouldn't really have a say of what is happening. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of like the importance we place on how people take part in the things that are going on at sanctuaries in a sense. Like they're very much participant observers and the sanctuary steward and the community is really the one that is doing the work. And we're just a support system learning and becoming aware of the different kinds of things they're practicing and doing. So even like my role is not like we're going in and we're doing this incredible intervention. You have some really cool things going on in the community already. Have you thought about this? And then they're like, oh, yeah, that's so cool. I want to learn more. I want to do this thing with you. That's kind of like how our first sacred sanctuary took place in Kumta. Um, Narayan, who was our land steward, was just a gentleman who wanted to do some good. He had some piece of land um, on the main road near the school and he's like looking at running a like local office one day for the village and it just turned out that like this would be a great place to collaborate on because it would help prop him up as a as a leader in the community and it would also like work with the students at the local school right next to door and it would just be like a place where people are able to come together have the kind of like a third space in the community where kind of emerging things would just happen so that's kind of the idea behind that and yeah, it's just about flattening the uh, the hierarchy in a sense, and seeing what we can do together. When we try to get rangers out there, it's not like we want them to go, go and take charge. It's just like we want them to go and experience this thing. That kind of ties into like how we try to make these sacred sanctuaries like sustainable. It's more of like a experience that we're selling to them, like an ecotourism thing. So like rangers mm-hmm. are able to go experience this thing, uh, be a part of it, and then we also have people that are. Working with the rangers, who are just able to go and visit it as a homestay and take part in it. So we're we're working on the whole design and everything, but I think there's a lot of a lot of substance there to it because even just like in India, like ecotourism is this new thing that's starting to happen. People want to get out into the nature, want to experience these things, and they're willing to spend money to get involved. Let's use that to create the infrastructure that we need to support the community level programs and also give these people that experience, that exposure, that immersion into the landscape.
1: Connecting all of these people and projects, this wants to happen everywhere. And we are so excited to be able to talk to you about your journey. We know that you're going back to India soon and we definitely plan on catching up with you once you're back there. And hopefully we can also interview some of the other characters get to yeah. meet them in the, in your story as well to give a really well-rounded version of what is going on over there in India. So yes. I'm wondering, Kieran, if you could share with us how our listeners might be able to support you or continue to follow your work.
0: I guess the one website is just like my own for photography. It's just kierantopiwala.com right now there's not really much on there I was just using that for like the gallery but I want to like create like, a page where I start putting out a little bit more of the writing from the Mayas magazine but also like, like have the print shop for the kinds of photos I, I put out in the in the show but I guess the the best way to support right now is just follow the story and, and just get inspired
2: <laughs> yeah with that thanks for joining us Kieran. really appreciate you man thank you
1: yes thank you
2: yeah more to come
1: thanks for listening if you're feeling a jolt of inspiration
2: if you'd like to support anna and me in our ongoing efforts to tell these stories you can donate to us on our patreon at awakening lands links for all this can be found in the show notes thanks and please tell your landscape we said hello